Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined, as always, by my talented co-host and friend, Daniel Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. Welcome, Dan. What's up, Leslie? What's up? Every week on this podcast, Dan and I are going to go beyond the headlines of the top TV stories and offer a deep dive into the latest news, biggest episodes of the week, and more. Let's dive into it. Number one. We have to begin with our weekly Kevin Hart segment. No, no. Let's instead lead off the week with a date that it feels like half the free world has been waiting for. HBO finally revealed that the eighth and final season of Game of Thrones is going to premiere April 14th, 9 p.m. Set your Apple calendar alerts to block out anything. Stay off social media. It'll run for six straight weeks and wrap its run Sunday, May 19th. And for those keeping track at home, that is, yes, within the Emmy eligibility window. And for our own sanity, maybe I'm just speaking for my own, after the broadcast upfront presentations. Dan, this is going to be the TV event of the year, right? I can't think of an alternative. I mean, some people might have said Brooklyn Nine-Nine coming back on NBC was the TV event of the year, but not as many as would have said (laughs) Game of Thrones. Yeah, you know, I feel as if there's a lot of kind of forgetting of how bumpy the past couple seasons have been, in large part because of how long it's been since we've seen Game of Thrones. It feels like it's been about 15 years and, you know, I'm going to have to rewatch the end of last season to remember what was happening. But then also the fact that it keeps winning Emmys for drama series every single time it comes back on, I think that kind of inflates the idea that it continues to be one of the best shows on TV when I'm not convinced it is. However, I know that it is definitely one of the most popular and talked about shows on TV. And so, yay. How are we planning on covering it, Leslie, here at The Hollywood Reporter? Well, we've already kicked off our final season coverage with the excellent Westeros expert, Josh Wiggler. Every Sunday on the site, he's going to do a new feature. It's called Final Path. And he breaks down every character's journey and features predictions for the upcoming final season. Those will run every Sunday morning at THR.com slash Game of Thrones. And who are you rooting for? I mean, Daenerys. Okay, that's fine. I'm personally rooting for one of the dragons. I want it to end with a dragon sitting on the Iron Throne just barfing up fire on everybody. That sounds like not something I would watch. I mean, we're about to lose Game of Thrones. We talked last week about the Game of Thrones prequel spinoffs. But would you say that once Game of Thrones is out of our life, we're not going to have any franchises, big TV franchises in our life, Leslie? No, I wouldn't say that because that's pretty much what every network and streamer is trying to do, HBO included, with the, with the Game of Thrones prequel, which we talked about recently, too. But the bigger one that's, that's back this week is Star Trek Discovery on CBS All Access. And that's a franchise that's being shepherded by Alex Kurtzman, who has a big overall deal with CBS. And they announced uh, this week that the Michelle Yeoh-led spinoff of Discovery is officially in development. And look, this is the latest show. They've got the Patrick Stewart-led Picard live-action show, an animated series, Lower Decks, because Kurtzman is going after a younger audience, which is super interesting. And there's more. You know, they're developing Starfleet Academy from the OC creators, and there's more to come. So this is just the latest franchise that is really ramping up. Given that CBS All Access, like all of our other streaming friends, will not ever give us ratings for anything, is there any way of making sense of this as a business model? Like, it's it's baffling to me because I don't know how many people watch Star Trek Discovery. And this would tend to suggest it's a lot because they're throwing a lot of money at all of these Star Trek things. 
How does one make sense of that? That's the big question that I think we're all asking in this digital and streaming era. But I think what's interesting is this is monetizing a library that that CBS has rights to. And I mean, this is if you want to look up, you know, the official story that we when we announced that Discovery was happening, talk about a, a complicated rights situation that was tied up between multiple conglomerates. And now it's at CBS and there's so much that they can monetize from this. At some point, they're going to have to either put up that whole library or sell it. But it's also like if you're a Trek fan and there are billions of them out there. Billions? Okay, there are several million Trek fans out there. I totally agree. There are dozens, probably even hundreds or thousands. And they're all going to pay a monthly fee to watch old, either old episodes and the first new Star Trek show in, in years. Plus, now they're giving those subscribers reasons to stay. Even if, if for whatever reason they don't like Discovery, hey, there's going to be something for everyone. Well, I think CBS All Access, this has been a problem that they've had where their shows that don't involve the word Star Trek aren't getting quite the same buzz and in some cases that's truly tragic like the good fight is a great tv show and i don't know that people talk about it and it's never in awards conversations which is ridiculous and then there are the other shows that are perhaps less good there was the one with the dollar bill that was getting passed around that got canceled that was their first and only cancellation so far strange angel i don't know that i ever heard anyone talk about that show for a second after it premiered it was renewed but or even Kevin Williamson's Tell Me a Story, which is an anthology, but it also is awaiting renewal. And that's a big, big showrunner, you know, for Kevin Williamson. It's his first show for CBS after a long time at Warner Brothers. And no one's talking about it. Oh, at all. But then again, having watched five or six episodes of that one, I completely understand why no one is talking about it. But it, you, it still puts CBS All Access in this weird position of are they suddenly just going to become the Star Trek network. And I don't think that's what CBS corporate clearly wants. You know, I think it's great to have that kind of bulkhead property, you know, in the same way that Marvel, when when Disney has Marvel, it's like, okay, there, there's your bulkhead. When uh, Warner Brothers has whatever they have, you know, everyone wants to have a franchise, but you still don't want to be just that franchise's streaming network. Right. And, you know, you mentioned Warner Brothers and they just launched DC Universe, right? There's a lot of scripted originals and all the old TV shows and some of the lesser known movies from years ago. That's a platform that's secondary to the upcoming Warner Media streaming service. So, I mean, yes, it's, you know, you're totally right. It is all about having one big flagship franchise to draw people in. But as we've seen with Netflix, you need more to maintain your subscribers. Just once, I would like to hear that someone was watching going through those library titles on CBS All Access. I, you know, in terms of my own use of it. I've only used it for the originals, and I think once I watched an episode of Big Brother that I'd missed. But otherwise, there, there's a whole vast library out there that I am not aware exists, and yet I know it exists. So, But as we say, everybody wants to have their own streaming platform, which I, I believe is what we call a transition. It is. For our next topic this week, we're pleased to welcome THR's digital media editor, Natalie Jarvie, to the podcast to discuss what will undoubtedly be one of the biggest stories of the year, Comcast's entry into the streaming space. Number two. Welcome, Natalie. Hey, guys. We have a lot of questions for this. I mean, so many questions. Just to start, can you set us up with how this streaming service will differ from what we've seen already with Netflix and what we've heard so far about Disney Plus? NBC is taking a really unique approach with this. They're going to launch a service that they're calling free with ads. The catch is that it is only free if you are already a cable subscriber. So not free at all. 
Exactly. Free on top of everything else you're already paying for every month. And then presumably if I want to get rid of those stupid, annoying ads, it becomes even less free. Yes. You can pay extra to not have the ads. And if you're one of the handful of people out there in the world that's not a, a cable subscriber, you'll have to pay to get this service. And this was something that was in, in the works for a long time, that Comcast had been mulling for years, right? Yeah. I mean, there has been reports as far back as two years ago that they were looking at something. I mean, it's no surprise that Comcast would want to get into this game. All their competitors are. It took them a while to figure out the right plan. And, um, you know, I heard that they had been mulling a lot of different options. You know, they could have kind of tried to go the, you know, CBS All Access route, basically give you what you could already get on the broadcast channel with some extra originals, some library content you couldn't find anywhere else. They could have tried to go the Disney route and really go all in they're kind of taking this you know middle ground approach instead well we were just talking about cbs all access and kind of the risk that if you have a platform like this you know you need to have a bulkhead brand and that's great but then you run the risk of becoming the star trek network what do you have as a sense of what the initial hook is going to be to get people to this platform at all I mean, that's the big question. And the challenge for them is that most of their content is already licensed elsewhere. They have The Office on Netflix. They have a ton of licensing deals with Hulu, which, by the way, they own 30% of Hulu. So they're going to have to figure out how to divvy up all this programming across these different platforms. Steve Burke told me he thinks that they have enough content that it won't be a problem. But what they're actually going to pull aside for the streaming service, we don't really know yet. Now, they have put Bonnie Hammer in charge, and she will likely probably order some some originals, you know, that are kind of in keeping with the NBC brand that you know, but but what exactly that is, it remains to be seen. Yeah, what's interesting to me is, you know, The Office is, from everything that I've been told, one of the most streamed series on Netflix, including all of their originals. So it's right up there with Friends, and that's a deal that could be worth a significant amount of money to Comcast if they choose to pull it back from Netflix. Yeah. And, you know, Steve Burke didn't really say what he's going to do in 2021 when that deal is up, but he indicated that they will, you know, they'll look at the market. They'll look at how big that streaming service is. It'll be a year old at that point. Who knows how many subscribers or viewers it will have. They'll make the best decision based on the property. And, you know, if Netflix is going to pay $100 million or close to $100 million for The Office like they did for Friends... Why would NBC turn down that money? Yeah, and then they could do a similar deal to what Warner Brothers did with Friends, where it's non-exclusive and it lives on both platforms. Yeah, exactly. Can I ask you to put on your kind of predicting the future hat, assuming that you have such a thing? Because I feel like we keep talking about Hulu and all of these things that are straining what it is currently. You know, the the Disney-Fox deal feels like it's going to change the shape of Hulu. This feels like it's going to change the shape of Hulu. If you had to guess in a couple of years, what does Hulu look like? That's a really good question. It all really depends on whether or not NBC Universal gets out of Hulu. Right now, it doesn't make sense for them to get out of Hulu. They have such access right now. They've got three board members, and they can basically sit back and make it really difficult for Disney to get anything done with Hulu. Uh, and so why would you give that up? If you're Steve Burke, why would you give that up? But at some point, they're probably going to have to get out if they really want to go all in on their own service. So, you know, at some point, I imagine we will see NBC sell its stake. Time Warner, Warner Media has already said that they will sell their stake uh, that they purchased several years ago. It's only 10%, so it's much smaller. So ultimately, I think Hulu starts to look a lot like a channel for Disney. It basically becomes the 
adult content channel, whereas Disney Plus is all of the family friendly stuff. So so Hulu starts to get all of the FX shows and, and Fox Searchlight content and, you know, ABC programming. And it doesn't really look like a Netflix competitor as much as kind of one piece of a much larger bundle for Disney. It's like their basic cable network, but in the streaming form. Yeah. Basically. Because, they, you know, when you look at Disney on the linear side, they've got their ABC and Freeform, but they don't have what they don't have that middle that what's that next tier up. So if Disney Plus is going to be family focused, but yet still have original Marvel and Star Wars and then this Hulu is going to have the middle, you know, it's a, it, it's starting to kind of fall into place. I just find it so odd that, though, that Hulu could suddenly find itself in position to suddenly just become a minor league station for another corporate group and that you know you put all the effort into oh look we won emmys for handmaid's tale we've got all these original shows look george clooney's making catch 22 and then i, I mean i don't know that this is what they want out of hulu i just don't know what else hulu can do unless they're going to really empower it to start spending like netflix and that's not been the case with hulu these last few years so you know i just they can't continue to compete with netflix if they lose all of the access to all of this additional programming that they had and I think once they become majority owned by Disney all of Disney's competitors are going to look at that and say do we really want to license our shows and help Disney in its streaming goals or do we want to pull our content back and help ourselves the question is you know will Viacom keep licensing to Hulu you know Sony Lionsgate all of these guys could continue to license to Hulu but I imagine that you know most of the Warner Media and eventually a lot of the NBC Universal content gets pulled out yeah and of those the Lionsgates and, the, and such those are companies that don't have their own SVOD at this point, they don't. So they probably will still look to sell their their programming to these these third party streamers. But otherwise, you know, you're seeing all these big media conglomerates start to kind of shore up their content for their own services. What does happen to an FX now? You know, to sort of the smaller things that are does it just get absorbed into Hulu to some degree, or it's all strange? <laughs> I think that makes a lot of sense. I will also be really curious to see you know how John Landgraf factors into all of this once uh, the merger closes so many questions he's supposed to be staying put at fx but i mean considering everything that he has said i mean he's you know they call him the mayor of hollywood for for a reason right so everything he has kind of predicted has we've seen you know he came up with he coined the peak tv term for the the crush of originals that we've seen and i'm just as interested in seeing if he is able to expand his role to a digital platform as well absolutely well thank you for joining us natalie thanks natalie thank you guys number three for our next topic, Dan, you're off to the Sundance Film Festival next week, and this is the second year that the festival has featured an indie episodic section. How have you seen Sundance become a must-attend event for TV insiders, and what are you looking forward to? I think one of the interesting things that Sundance has had to figure out in the past couple of years is the difference between making Sundance into a launch platform for TV shows that already have homes or featuring television in a way that it reflects the sort of Sundance ethos and marketplace. And I think that until a couple of years ago, they had a few big TV premieres per year. For example, the OJ doc would be a great example of something where they screened all of the hours of OJ Made in America. And that was a way that they sort of touched into the TV marketplace. But then they also had things like the debut of Downward Dog, the ABC talking dog comedy, which didn't necessarily seem to fit, even though I guess I could understand the argument. So what they decided to do last year was kind of de-emphasize the things that already had homes 
and do, as you said, the indie episodic section where it's basically pilots that don't have homes. And in some cases they have production companies behind them. In some cases they have digital streaming homes. So there are webisodes and stuff. But in some cases, it's really just sort of labors of love that people made and they don't know what to do with. And it's not like there was a big breakout from last year's indie episodic slate, but there were things that had people talking. And this year they've done that. And this year they've kind of mixed it up. There are 10 episodic kind of shorts, pilots that they're showing. And then there are a bunch of other more clearly indie things that actually do have homes. So there's uh, Sundance TV's State of the Union, which has Nick Hornby writing, Stephen Frears directing, and it's a two-hander about a relationship told in 10 very short segments between characters played by Rosamund Pike and Chris O'Dowd. And so they're showing all of that. They're showing a couple episodes of Greg Araki's Now Apocalypse, which is a kinky, weird, sci-fi, dark comedy thing that is very much Greg Racky's sensibility and Greg Racky has been a Sundance regular for years and then they and have that's on stars right yeah that is already set for stars already set for premiere and that one is under the special premiere segment not indie episodic on the second morning I'm there I'm going to be sitting for four hours of a documentary with two people accusing Michael Jackson of sexual molestation so that will be a joyful 9 a.m. way to start the day. That would be Leaving Neverland, I believe. Then they're also screening the Amazon Lorena Bobbitt documentary Lorena for people who watched the ABC John Wayne Bobbitt news segment a couple weeks ago and want to get her side. That one's produced by Jordan Peele. There's just a lot of stuff happening and it's, it's interesting to see it taking form. I don't know that they 100% got what they were going for last year. I don't know that they got as much buzz as they would have liked. You know, one of the big things they had was America to Me, which ended up being my number one show of the year. And it was acquired basically as people were on the ground at Sundance, again, by stars. But even that, the initial screenings for that were, I don't want to say sparsely attended, but they were not sellouts to the degree that bigger things that Sundance tend to be. So I, I think this is a good thing Sundance is trying to do. I think a lot of the other festivals are also trying to do it. South by Southwest also has an indie episodic section. Lots of the film festivals these days are doing it because I don't know if you know this, Leslie, TV is where it's at. Yeah, I hear, I hear there's just a lot of content now. <laughs> there really is. And, and I just, I love the idea of what this could be. I wish they were specifying a little bit more how what their own version of this is what their ethos is in doing this and i feel like it's a little between things at this moment and i hope that they don't get discouraged and stop doing it but i hope they continue to try to refine it because I, I would like to see more crowds there last year a lot of the indie episodic things that i went to they weren't empty again but they were definitely in some cases half full or if you have an indie episodic thing where there are five pilots and all of the pilots have brought their stars and their producers and their crew to the screening, and the screening is still only half full, that means there's not a lot of people from the public actually being interested. And, and that's Sundance's challenge. And, and all I can do is go and write reviews of the things. And so I'll do that. And, and I've watched a couple things already, and, and they're really good. You know, I'll have reviews of State of the Union and Now Apocalypse, and, and they're both really promising. So... Hopefully some buzz. I think I think that's what Sundance would like more than anything out of year two of Indie Episodic is buzz. Yeah, and it seems like it's a, a great program to help people who haven't found a home for their big projects to really get some press and get some attention to their projects and hopefully find a distributor. Exactly. It would be it would be great if one of these pilots was actually picked up by somebody big and made a break. That's that's obviously what 
you know, Sundance is always about you have you, you sometimes have years where only one or two films really make a ripple out in the world. And then you have other years where there are 10 films that are, you know, make 50 million dollars and get nominated for Oscars. And everyone's like, ooh, Sundance is back. And I think that's what the indie episodic section needs is they need someone to actually come pick up one of these homeless pilots and actually put it on the air. Uh, the Inbetweeners is as close as it came last year, the FX hitman comedy, which was renewed after airing here. But even that, it's with an asterisk because it already was produced by the Australian branch of FX. And so it wasn't like it was coming from nowhere, but it did get acquired and get picked up and it got put on the air in, in the States and people liked it. You know, Tim Goodman loved that show. I like it very much. So that was a start. I think they need something bigger. I think they need something to really break out. And, you know, looking at the synopses, I'm not sure that I know what it is, but I guess that's I guess that's why I'm going to bundle up and put on a scarf and, you know, brave the cold. And you'll have to let us know what you see that seems good. I will certainly report back from Park City. I think that takes us to our next topic. I don't want to say it's the most wonderful time of the year because Leslie would quickly correct me and say that baseball season is the most wonderful time of the year. And I don't disagree, but it's definitely the second or third most wonderful time of the year. And yes, it is the start of the Broadcast Network pilot season. Number four. I mean, Kevin Riley may have said he was killing it, but he didn't. It lives on. It is still alive and well. And look, with every new calendar year comes this frenzy every January at the Broadcast Networks, where all the scripted executives sift through hundreds of scripts that were ordered in the fall to determine which comedies and dramas they'll actually cast and produce. This season, the five broadcast networks will collectively order anywhere from 75 to 100 pilots. And a third of those, if they're lucky, will be picked up to series in May. And probably 10% of those, if that, will wind up coming back for a second season. So it's a big cycle. There's a lot of content. And what's interesting this year is that four of the five broadcast networks all have new executive regimes and people reading scripts and weighing in. And what I'm curious to see is how those new regimes are going to make their mark. The issue is, is that a lot of these scripts were picked up by their predecessors. So it could be another copy and paste repeat of a lot of big, broad procedurals and multi-camera comedies and family stuff. Or there could be some networks taking some big swings. My feeling the past couple of years is that there's been a slight decline in the number of pilots. Is that is that right? Last year was up a little bit, but it's still pretty low when you're looking at, at overall. There were 76 pilots ordered last year that was up one from 2017. And if you want to get into the weeds, that was the, the lowest order, at least since I've been doing this since 2012, when 87 pilots were picked up. And if you want to look at the highs, 2013, when peak TV was really blowing up and the broadcast networks were going all in, 98 pilots. And when you stop and probably look back at the number of shows from that development season that are still on, and I'm not going to ask you to do that. <laughs> I would I would guess very, very few. It just It is the insane profligacy of this, the, the absurd waste of money of this entire process that amazes me each and every year. And, you know, I'm not saying that I root for it when a Kevin Riley says, I'm killing pilot season, but I still look and go, surely there has to be a more efficient way of doing this. And surely somebody's bottom line could really be enhanced if they found a way to half their pilot output. That would be 
25, 30 million. Yeah, That's... when you're looking at the average cost of a pilot is a million plus and more on some of these other big swings, especially on the drama side, there has to be a better way. And I, and I don't know that, that Kevin Riley coming out and proclaiming that pilot season is dead and then leaving Fox <laughs> not long afterwards is the right way to do it. But, you know, on the cable side, AMC has an interesting model where they, they do a lot of script to series, meaning they open a writer's room, they pick up the script. And they work on maybe anywhere from three to five additional orders. So when whoever is running the network and look at here are the first five episodes that we've mapped out, then you pick it up the series, then you cast it. You know exactly what kind of show you're getting and you know the direction versus competing in a tiny window where your your NBC, Fox, ABC, CBS and CW are all competing for writers, all competing for directors and then all competing for the same talent. And much of that talent is being snapped up with straight to series orders at Netflix and Hulu and Apple, who all pay significantly more and who get shorter orders to work with. And, you know, look, the system is is flawed, but it's not going anywhere. And I think what I'm curious to see specifically is what Fox does, because this is a network that is in the midst of transition. It doesn't have a studio backing anymore once the Disney deal closes. And they're making a big play for sports. They have baseball. They have football. They have wrestling. They have a big unscripted hit on their hands with the masked singer. And they're making a play for big, broad audiences. So that gives you, first of all, with all that sports and all the unscripted stuff, there's not a whole lot of time on the schedule for scripted. So... I'm very curious to see what how many they pick up and what they do. So far, they don't have any pilot orders yet. The only thing they have picked up is two straight series animated shows. So make of that what you will. Yeah, I kind of love the idea that Fox's fall next year is going to be three nights a week of Masked uh, Singer. Just so much Masked Singer everywhere. Okay, so we're kind of getting into the meat of the pilot pickup process. What have you noticed in the kind of pre process what what have the early pickups been like so far it's what you would expect so a lot of family comedies and a lot of procedurals and yes definitely some reboots abc is doing nypd blue there's a law and order spinoff at nbc called hate crimes that was picked up straight to series and there's a lot of so far a lot of family oriented stuff and procedural stuff is that just where networks are seeing that they can still carve out a space? <laughs> That's what it looks like. I mean, when you look at the hits, This Is Us continues to do well. So there's where all your family stuff is coming from. And, you know, look, ABC's had great success with, with The Good Doctor and Grey's Anatomy is still going strong in, in 15 seasons in. Yeah, that is that is crazy. And yeah, you see, even the things that are doing kind of OK or decently, something like FBI on CBS, which... It's really had like three showrunners already. Three showrunners, but it's still drawing a reasonable audience. And that has a lot to do, obviously, with a lead in from NCIS, which yeah, is. But they'll franchise FBI like Dick Wolf is already working on spinoffs of that. He said said as much back at TCA last summer. And do we need to, in this conversation, uh, pour out a little from our 40s for Criminal Minds? No. <laughs> <laughs> they made a lot of money for a lot of people. I, I, I think it's it's coming to a fitting end. And that's going to be, did they say 10 episodes and that's going to be for next season? For next season, yes. Renewed for a final batch of episodes for next season. They're staying in production and filming them after the season ends, which will help the cast move on to other projects before the actual series ends. And it'll help the studio basically save some money in producing the series. You can't see me right now, but I'm holding up a sign that says free Paget Brewster. Anyway, I am I'm glad that they will get the opportunity to catch all of the available unsubs in America before they end the show. Yes, and we can pour one out too for Elementary, which is also ending this season on CBS. Who would even notice? No one, because they haven't scheduled it yet. So it's, it's a little bit like Beauty and the Beast, which I'm fairly sure is in season 17 on the CW. And, and I 
dare anyone to prove to me that Beauty and the Beast is not still a TV show. I can do that. <laughs> I think that's going to take us to our next segment. And as always, we wrap things up with our Critics Corner. Number five. This week, there's a few series returning with new seasons. Grace and Frankie and The Punisher on Netflix. Shameless, one of my favorites, resumes the second half of its ninth season on Showtime as it heads toward Emmy Rossum's departure. You've got a couple of new shows debuting this week, including Black Monday on Showtime, Comedy Central's The Other Two, and not to be forgotten, one of our favorites on the show, The Good Place, wraps its third season on NBC. Dan, what's interesting? How is that even possible that The Good Place is going to be done? That makes no sense. It should be all year round, constant, nonstop Good Place, I say. And really, that hour comedy block with Brooklyn Nine-Nine and The Good Place, it's so good. Why would you not want that 52 weeks a year? That is the good place. It is. It's it's nothing but happy. Anyway, so you listed all those all those things that are absolutely premiering. And th- let's get real. At the end of the day, all anyone is doing this week and into the weekend is watching documentaries about the Fire Festival. That, that's just all any of us are doing. It, there, there's nothing else. We could have talked with Natalie about that as well, because I certainly don't think that anything Hulu has ever put on the air has gotten that rush of buzz that fire fraud got. And, you know, we're all so enamored with what a freakish, ridiculous story the fire Festival and its embarrassing fraudulent collapse was that I don't know that anyone's actually talking all that much about whether the documentary's any good. And I, I don't think it's an especially good documentary, but it's a great story. And boy, oh boy, you want to smack that fire Festival guy upside the head. He is, he is he comes across as truly one of the world's worst people. And then his ridiculously hot girlfriend, you know, just keeps popping up going, ha ha, I still love him. And all you go is, oh, come on, <laughs> this is all awful. These are not good people. So, yes. Yeah, so I'm spending my weekend uh, definitely watching the Netflix version of the Fire Festival documentary because I do not yet have enough reasons to uh, be scared of millennials. And so that is that is what it is. So anyone who wants to do a four hour marathon of Fire Festival documentaries and report on their feelings about people who are insta famous are, are more than welcome to do that. Um, you can live tweet along with Dan this weekend. I will be curious to see what the Netflix documentary is. And I liked that the Hulu documentary got a stab in at the Netflix documentary in its closing credits. That that seemed like a kind of baller move from Hulu. So I I like that. Did they rush it to get it out before the Netflix one dropped? It seemed pretty clearly like they did that. Yes. And and they had a double stab at Netflix and they hadn't even announced it. It was just sort of like, oh, hey. Here's a doc- here, here's our documentary about Fire Festival, as everyone else had already been preparing their reviews for the Netflix one, which, you know, Netflix announced months ago. So anyway, there are other things to watch, though. I think that some people are going to probably like Black Monday on Showtime a and lot. Don Cheadle, Andrew Rannells, Regina Hall. And from 50% of the creators of Happy Endings? Yes, David Casper is a showrunner. It's produced by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, too. Who also directed the pilot. I think it's a show that doesn't have a clue what it is and what it wants to be. On the other hand, I do think it's a show that is frequently very funny. So I think there's at least an off chance that if it settles on what it is, it could be good. I think like by the third episode, it kind of decided it wanted to be an R-rated happy ending set in the 80s in New York City. And it felt like a sitcom. And I don't mean that necessarily as a bad thing. It was just all very punchline and catchphrase driven. And I thought, okay, that if that's what this show wants to be... 
that's what it can be. The first episode, in contrast, though, makes this big, okay, here's the true story of what happened in the uh, stock market collapse of 1987, and I don't get the feeling the show cares about being that at all, so it's it's kind of a bait-and-switch. But some people will really like Black Monday, and uh, lots of people will not. Uh, Tim Goodman's review and The Hollywood Reporter was very negative. My review would have been more mixed. I think it is funny, but could be funnier. But yeah, there's there's so much stuff. And then there's, you know, there's a new season of Smilf that no one can really talk about anymore. Uh, thanks, Breaky Shaw. Um, Who's still making the press rounds as we speak? I, I saw she did one uh, explanation type interview with Today. Is that what it was? I, you know. Yeah. And she's working the late night scene as well. Yeah. She's making she's making the press rounds. It's remarkable that she can still do that. But the apology tour continues. I, I, I have read Kim Masters's coverage in The Hollywood Reporter and it, it all makes me a little bit queasy. And then if you can make it to the start of next week, Celebrity Big Brother, baby. Star in the mooch. Well, that feels like a good note to end things on. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Dan and I will be back next week. And until then, be sure to subscribe on your various podcast platforms. And if you like us, feel free to rate us and review us because those things help us spread word of mouth. And TV's Top 5 is nothing without word of mouth. Thank you for listening. 